السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد ولا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. We gather again for the weekly dars. For the past few weeks, we've been studying the hadith of Umm al Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha about the hijrah. The emigration of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam from Makkah to Medina. This is the hadith from Sahih al Bukhari, hadith number 3905. And we continue with the remaining parts of the hadith. Something else about this hadith, which <coughs> I didn't mention at the beginning, but it's important to know that this hadith in its entirety, with this much detail, from the <coughs> more famous books of hadith, is actually only available in Sahih al-Bukhari. The other authors of hadith, even... Well, all the other more famous authors of hadith do not have this hadith from Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha or even about the hijrah, the emigration, in this much detail. So it's actually a unique hadith to Sahih al-Bukhari. Parts of it are mentioned elsewhere, but not this hadith in its entirety. The point where we left off last week is the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam making his way to Medina in the company of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiyallahu and his freed slave, his mawla Amir ibn Fuhayra radiyallahu and a non-Muslim guide and tracker, Abdullah ibn Uraiqit. This group of four traveling on two camels, on one camel the Prophet ﷺ and behind him riding pillion, Abu Bakr anhu and on the other camel, the freed slave of Abu Bakr anhu Amir ibn Fuhayra, and the non-Muslim tracker and guide, Abdullah ibn Uraiqit. So this party of four is traveling, 
Along the way, I explained that they stopped near a boulder which cast a very long shadow. And beneath that shade, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhuma cleared the area and requested the Prophet wasallam to rest. He did rest. And in the meantime, a young shepherd came along seeking the same shade. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhuma. And when he met him, he requested him for milk. And he very diligently and with great affection and dedication, he cleaned the and wiped the udders, the udder of the animal himself and milked the animal, prepared it in a cup, a utensil which he had specifically brought for the use of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam for his wudu and drinking. And then he cooled the water, the milk with some water and then presented it to the Prophet sallallahu Initially the Prophet sallallahu was asleep. So Abu Bakr radiallahu waited for him to wake up and then he presented the milk to him. So that incident happened. Then after that, when they resumed their journey, Abu Bakr radiallahu still fearful that he would be, they would be caught. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam reassured him uh, on more than one occasion. And then Abu Bakr radiallahu noticed a rider who came closer than any of the other riders or search parties had ever come. And now he was very anxious, seeing the dust rising in the distance and this rider hurtling at them at great speed. He, he told Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Messenger of Allah, here comes someone. And then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa wasn't even glancing back, looking ahead single-mindedly, focusing on his journey and on his travel, reciting the Holy Qur'an loudly. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told him not to fear. And he said, لا تحزن إن الله معنا Do not grieve, for indeed Allah is with us. And he said this phrase on more than one occasion, in the cave as well, as Allah quotes in the Holy Qur'an. And he also prayed against a rider. In one narration, Allahumma sra'ah, O Allah, throw him. And exactly as the Prophet ﷺ prayed, Suraqat ibn Malik, ibn Ja'shum al-Mudliji, this rider, he fell off his horse, the horse stumbled, and we have mentioned the story in detail last week. This is where we left off. And then Suraqat ibn Malik, after his encounter and conversation, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa he actually said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, finally, O Messenger of Allah, command me, instruct me, what should I do? Subhanallah. Till that moment, he was galloping towards him at breakneck speed, with the sole intention of capturing Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam for a bounty. And upon his brief encounter, and conversation. By the end of it, he says to the same man whom he had been seeking to capture, he said, O Messenger of Allah, instruct me. So, 
Prophet ﷺ said to him, conceal our affair. He even offered him. He said, here, take my arrow, for uh, some arrows for identification, and then see if you, uh, you will be passing by certain areas. There you will find my flocks and herds. So present this arrow for support and for identification, and you can take any animal that you wish. Rasulullah declined his offer and then said to him, he said, well, command me, what do I do? He said, conceal our affair, ensure that no one follows us. So then Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Ju'shim, I didn't mention this, but he returned and he made his way back towards his area where he lived. And on the way, whenever he met anyone, he would divert them and distract them and inform them that I have, I'm a master rider, I'm a master scout, I've been looking for them in this area, there's no one here. So he would provide false information and dissimulate in order to protect the Messenger wasallam. That was Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Ju'shim. And then the Prophet wasallam and Abu Bakr and the party continued. Speaking of the words, لَا تَحْزَنْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَعْنَا that do not grieve, for indeed Allah is with us. Contrast these words and this phrase, that verily Allah is with us, with the phrase of the Prophet Musa alayhi salam. The similarities are that the Prophet Musa alayhi salam was leading his people out of Egypt and from the clutches of Pharaoh. As the people followed him, they were being pursued by the army of Pharaoh, his chariots, riders. And they knew they were going to be captured. That's how it seemed. And they kept on exclaiming, Inna la mudrakun, inna la mudrakun. Verily, we will be caught, we will be captured. So the Prophet Musa alayhi salam, he confidently replied, Kalla, as the Quran quotes, Never. Indeed, with me is my Lord, and he shall guide me. But the Prophet Musa alayhi salam used the words, That with me is my Lord, not with us. So although he was leading his people, and by his virtue, they would also be protected. When speaking of Allah's divine protection, the Prophet Musa alayhi salam said, they were exclaiming, inna la mudrakun, we will be caught, we will be captured. His reply was, kalla inna ma'i rabbi sayahdeen, never, with me is my Lord, he shall guide me. When Rasulullah alayhi salatu wasalam was with Abu Bakr radiallahu and in the cave and in the desert, when on more than one occasion, he said to him, O Messenger of Allah, they are close, I fear they may capture us. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said to him, La tahzan inna allaha ma'ana. Do not grieve for indeed Allah is with us. So this divine protection and this envelopment of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in Allah's divine protection and mercy, this wasn't restricted to the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu wasn't merely 
included in the protection by virtue of the Prophet ﷺ. Rather, Rasulullah ﷺ said to him on more than one occasion that Allah is with us, both of us. And he also used the words, مَا What do you think of two of whom Allah is the third? So Rasulullah ﷺ mentioned then as well that you are a unique individual in yourself. And what do you think of two people of whom Allah is the third? And repeatedly he told him, لا تحزن إن الله معنا Do not grieve, indeed Allah is with us. Again, this is another virtue and merit of Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq radiyallahu anhu. To continue with the remaining part of the hadith. Qal ibn Shihabin, I relate with a continuous chain of narration from me to Imam Bukhari rahimahullah, who with the previous chain at the beginning of the hadith says, Qal ibn Shihabin, ibn Shihab say, said, فَأَخْبَرَنِي عُرْوَةُ بْنُ الزُّبَيْرِ That عُرْوَةُ بْنُ الزُّبَيْرِ informed me. أَنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمُ That Allah's Messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم لقي الزبير He met الزبير بن العوام رضي الله عنه في ركب من المسلمين in a caravan of Muslims كانوا تجارا They were traders قافلين من الشام returning from Sham فَكَسَسْ زُبَيْرُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمُ So Zubayr ibn Awwam radiyallahu anhu He gave clothes to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam to wear. وَأَبَا بَكْرٍ أَنْتُ أَبُو بَكْرٍ رَضِيَ ثِيَابَ بَيَادٍ White clothes. That's just one sentence. What he mentions here is that the Prophet ﷺ continued on his journey after his encounter with Suraqat ibn Malik. And closer to Medina, the Prophet ﷺ was met by Zubayr ibn Awwam radiyallahu anhu. Now before I continue, this is Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha narrating from her perspective. Of course, she hasn't included all the details. But between this point and the incident of Suraqat ibn Malik, there were one or two other incidents. And the most famous of them was the Prophet wasallam's visit to the tent of Umm Ma'bad al-Khuza'iyyah radiyallahu anha. Umm Ma'bad was from the tribe of Khuzar, and they lived in a region called Qudayd. And that Qudayd is the same region where Suraqat ibn Malik lived, the one who we've just been speaking of. So the Prophet ﷺ, after his experience with, or his encounter with Suraqat ibn Malik, as he was continuing, they passed by this area in Qudayd, where they came across the tent of a very old woman. Her name was Umm Ma'bad. And she was, till then, her habit was 
that she was very hospitable. And she would pitch her tent and sit outside the tent waiting for passers-by. Of course, she had a family, but her unique hospitality was such that she would wait there for any passers-by, any strangers, and then offer them food and drink. But on that occasion, and she would feed people, not only give them water to drink, but even cook for them and feed them, all for free. The Arabs were famous and renowned for their hospitality. And this shouldn't contradict some of the messages of the Qur'an. For instance, in the Makkan Surahs, there is great condemnation of people who fail to provide, who fail to give, who are guilty of stinginess and miserliness. So how do we reconcile both accounts? Especially in the Makkan Surahs. Surah Al-Ma'un, I explained what that they refuse to give even the bare necessities of life, or things that wouldn't harm them or reduce their wealth in any way, such as ropes or buckets or utensils, which will ultimately be returned. And they fail to share them. That was the height of miserliness and stinginess. And even in Surah Al-Fajr, which uh, the part of the surah which inshallah I will comment on on Sunday. That you devour inheritance and you love wealth immoderately and passionately. And prior to that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala condemns them with the words that you do not feed the orphans. كَلَّا بَلَّا تُكْرِمُونَ الْيَتِينَ وَلَا تَحَاضُونَ عَلَىٰ طُعَامِ الْمِسْكِينَ Nay, you do not honor the orphan, nor do you encourage one another to feed the poor person. Specifically, وَلَا تَحَاضُونَ عَلَىٰ طُعَامِ الْمِسْكِينَ And nor do you encourage one another to feed the poor person. And there are many other such references in the Makkan Surahs to people being stingy, miserly, and not feeding, not giving, not sharing. So, and yet here I am saying, and we constantly hear that the Arabs were very hospitable. So how do you reconcile both accounts? It's very simple. The Makkan Surahs normally refer to the elite of Makkah, the elite of the Quraysh. They are the main people who are being addressed. They are the ones being chastised and condemned. And Many of the traits mentioned in the Qur'an are not applicable to everyone, but for those who were guilty. And the problem with the Meccan elite was that having, become, having been traders and merchants, and having become extremely wealthy, immensely wealthy and rich, that wealth had corrupted them. And wealth inevitably corrupts. It makes people greedy. And that may sound harsh, but it's a fact. Allah says that repeatedly in different ways, in different parts of the Qur'an. 
We've covered this before. Nay, man transgresses. And the word layatra, although we translate it as transgresses, the real original meaning of layatra is to means to rise. So if you imagine this word is used for a storm at sea and what does it mean? Imagine the rising of a huge wave. That's the meaning of to rise. So how does it become transgressed? It's very simple. Anyone who rises above his position Anyone who pretends to raise their head above their true status, that person rebels, that person transgresses, that person goes beyond the bounds and the limits set for them, that person rises above their position. So that's the meaning of transgression, but the original meaning is the person rises. And that's exactly what wealth does. A person thinks that a person has delusions of grandeur, of popularity, of self-worth, self, self-importance, of being beyond their true measure, of being all-powerful. Wealth makes a person feel immortal. الذي جمع ماله وعدده يحسب أن ماله أخلده. He thinks that his wealth will give him everlasting life, and that's what wealth does. And wealth makes a person greedy. And Allah says in the Quran, "ومن يقشح نفسه فأولئك هم المفلحون." That whoever is protected from the greed of his soul. From the avarice of his soul, then these are the ones who are successful. Who does Allah mention that in relation to? Allah mentions that in relation to the Ansar companions of Medina, of whom, of whom he says, وَيُؤْثِرُونَ عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِهِمْ وَلَوْ كَانَ بِهِمْ خَصَاصَةً وَمَنْ يُقَشَحَ نَفْسِهِ فَأُولَٰئِكَ الْمُفْلِحُونَ That they give privilege to others even though they themselves may be suffering, of, may be suffering great need and hunger. And there's a famous story of Abu Talha al-Ansari radiyallahu an in relation to that verse. So by the testimony of the Qur'an, even though they themselves are in need, they give to others. Even though they are themselves hungry, they feed others. And that's what the freedom of greed does. Wealth creates greed. Greed creates more miserliness, more stinginess, more love of wealth. An insane love of wealth, whereas poverty makes a person humble, sharing, compassionate, sympathetic. And this is why even today we know that the poorest sectors of society, the poorest sections of society, in terms of proportion, give far more charity than the rich. And the wealthier person becomes, the stingier person becomes. Because there's that fear of losing it. And a person's greed increases. In a very beautiful hadith, Rasulullah says, A man grows old, and two things in him grow younger. 
greed, and the love of life, i.e. a long life. And only a week ago, there were sales And we've all seen and heard what happened at these sales. An undignified and demeaning spectacle of rich people. And we are all rich compared to people in this country. Are of the 10% elite of the world in terms of material possessions and the quality of life. So people who have enough money to spend, who already have possessions, enough possessions, and yet we saw the sights, we saw the scenes, we heard about them, we read about them, undignified and demeaning people falling over each other, a royal stampede, People squabbling, fighting, injuring one another. Awful possessions which are not, which are luxuries, which are not necessities. And in fact, some of the headlines were of people who purchased items who didn't need them. In fact, they actually say once I, I I didn't know why I got it. I didn't know, I don't need it. I don't know why I purchased it. Because we eat with our eyes, not our stomachs or throats. We purchase with our eyes. We buy on an impulse. Grown-up children wanting toys. We grab the toys, we are distracted by them for a short while, and then they are cast aside and forgotten. Just like children. Maybe I'll explain more on this in the Tafsir on Sunday. The Qur'an tells us so much about human psychology, about human thought, about human emotion. It's a treasure of wisdom. So, the Arabs in general were very hospitable. But we're talking about the commoners. And the elites, their love of wealth, prevented them from sharing from feeding. They would feed for the wrong reasons. They would hold parties, but only the rich were invited. And this is it. We have feasts, we have functions, where people feed insincerely, and people eat insincerely. How can that be? Very simple, we have a wedding function. We think it's a burden. We have to call so many people. And then we start making the list. We promise ourselves the list will only be a hundred. And then suddenly inflates to a thousand. Why? If we don't call him, he'll be offended. If we don't call her, we'll be, she will be offended. We must call them. So most people are called by obligation. Not because we want to call them. If we don't call them, we'll never hear the end of it. There'll be trouble. So we invite them. Now since we invite the rich, we invite the wealthy, we invite those who are not in need of the food, they as well, when they receive the wedding card, 
most of us now, there are weddings every week. People attend most weddings. Wedding feasts and food have become routine. When a person receives invitation, it's like a bird. I have to go. I don't want to go. A whole day will be wasted. We have to travel to another city. I really don't want to go. What excuse can I make? Other family members say, no, we have to go. If we don't go, we'll never hear the end of it. If we don't go, there will be trouble. So we are invited insincerely and we go insincerely. This is why Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi it's been narrated in a hadith that this is the worst of foods and feasts where the poor are excluded and the rich are included. Those who need the food, they are not invited, we don't invite them and they are unable to partake of the food. Even though that inclusion is a source of barakah and blessing. A man came to Rasulullah complaining to him about his brother, who was less privileged than him, and to whom he was provi- for whom he was providing. Rasulullah said to him, What do you know? Maybe Allah is sustaining you through him. So, what the Qur'an says is very accurate. The elite and the rich, the wealthy and the powerful, the affluent and the influential, they were the ones who were stingy, miserly, least hospitable. And it was the common ones, those who were less privileged, who were forever sharing, sympathizing, and who were so hospitable. So when I say about Umm Ma'bad al-Khuza'iyah anha and the other Arabs, indeed, these were the common people who despite their own poverty and need, they gave, they shared. So Umm Ma'bad al-Khuza'iyah anha would sit outside her tent waiting for passers-by. And then when travelers would come, she would make it a point of giving them to drink, of entertaining them, of showing great hospitality, cooking for them, feeding them, slaughtering the animals and feeding them. But on that occasion, there was a drought. So when the Prophet ﷺ arrived, her husband, Abu Ma'bad, he was absent. And Abu Ma'bad was sitting there. She was very old. Rasulullah ﷺ, she had nothing to offer. So the Prophet ﷺ asked her, do you have any food or drink? She politely declined and said, we have nothing. There was a sheep or a goat in the tent. And Prophet ﷺ said, what's of that animal? Can I, can we have milk from that animal? So Umm Ma'bad the Prophet ﷺ said, what is that animal? So she, she replied, she never knew who he was. So she replied that, oh, it's uh, a, an animal that was too weak to go with the rest of the flock. So it's too weak, it's too emaciated. So that's why it remained behind. So the Prophet ﷺ said, does he have any milk? She said, it's far too weak for that. The Prophet ﷺ said, do you permit me to milk it? She said, if you can find some milk, then by all means milk it. So the Prophet ﷺ had the animal brought to him, and then he with himself with his noble hands, 
he went down, he took hold of the animal's legs in a certain manner which they used to grab the animal's leg and place it between the knees to hold on to it and then milk the animal. And then the Prophet ﷺ with his own noble hands, he wiped the, cleaned the udder and wiped it and he began milking. And he asked for a bowl. And he specifically said, a bowl that will suffice all of us. So Umm Ma'bad himself and his party. So a bowl, large bowl was brought for him. Prophet ﷺ then milked. And lo and behold, to everyone's surprise and astonishment, the animal was milked and it filled the very large bowl with milk. Then the Prophet ﷺ, look at his akhlaq, his manners, his character. He took the bowl and the first person he gave to drink was Umm Ma'bada And he gave her to drink. She drank to her fill. And then he gave it to the others. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu an, Abdullah ibn Uraiqit, and Amir ibn Fahirah radiyallahu an. And then when everyone had drank to their fill, then Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, at the end, as a last person, he drank himself. And then he milked the animal one more time, and filled it. And then he left this large container with Umm Ma'bad. And then he departed. Um, Abu Ma'bad, her husband, returned later with the with the remaining flock. And when he returned, he saw the milk. And he said, where did this come from? So Umm Ma'bad radiallahu anha said, she described the person. Oh, a party came. There was one individual, a very blessed man amongst them. And he came. And she related the whole incident. So... Um, Abu Ma'bad said to her, describe him. And then she gave a very beautiful description of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. His gait, his mannerisms, his appearance, his demeanor, his behavior with the others. And it's a very long and beautiful description. And she, since she was one of the Bedouin, and their Arabic was a purist, she gave an extremely beautiful description the first word she mentioned, he said to her, Abu Ma'bad said to his wife, Umm Ma'bad, describe him, him to me. And her first words were, he was obviously and so apparently beautiful. That was the first description. And then she went on to describe him, his appearance, his eyebrows. She said he had beautiful long eyelashes. And then his, his face, his neither too tall, neither too short, of medium height. He wasn't too slim, or he didn't look emaciated in any way. And then his demeanor, she said he spoke very little. And yet when he was silent, there was an aura of awe around him. When he spoke, all the others fell silent, and they rushed to observe his instructions and commands. And so on. She was beholden by him. And when she described him, Abu Ma'bad said to her, that was the same person whom the Muqqans speak of, and about whom I had already made the intention that I will travel to him and believe in him. He is a messenger of Allah. It's then reported that later Abu Ma'bad and Umm Ma'bad 
both came to the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in Medina and they embraced Islam. It's also reported that that animal which the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had stroked and which he had milked, he actually survived in that state providing copious milk all the way till into a few years of the Khilafah of Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiyallahu Till the, till the year of Ramada, Amur Ramada, till the year of the ashes or the dust. Uh, a famine took place during the Khilaf of Umar ibn Khattab radiyallahu when there was a severe drought in the whole of Arabia, in the Arabian Peninsula. And the Muslims had to wait. Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiyallahu had requested the replenishing of supplies from the different regions, from Sham and from Iraq, Sa'd ibn Abi Waqas from, from Iraq, um, things were sent, and also from Sham. But in Medina and the surrounding regions, there was a great drought. And Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab, and he vowed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he would not eat or drink until everybody else ate or drank. And he survived on absolute minimum food. That was known as Amur Ramada, the year of the ashes, or the year of the dust. Ramad means ash, because because of the drought and the dryness, the there were clouds of dust, and that's what the year was called, the year of famine and the year of uh, ash dust. So Amur Ramada, till that year, it's reported that this animal survived providing copious milk, and he brought great blessings on this family. That was just one incident, famously known as the incident of Ummu Ma'bad radiyallahu anha. There was another incident later where they came across a young shepherd. So when they met him, they asked him for milk. Again, he said, the animals are unable to provide any milk. Prophet ﷺ requested the, his permission. He then gave him and said, if you can milk it, milk it. Prophet ﷺ repeated the same thing. So when this young lad saw this, he said to the Prophet ﷺ that, who are you? No normal person can do this. So he said, I will tell you as long as you conceal my affair. So he promised. So he said, I am Muhammad ibn Abdullah, the messenger of Allah. She says, oh, are you the heathen from Mecca? That the people call the heathen. So he said, I am the same one. So then he, he said that I've always made the intention, sorry, he said, may I follow you? So the Prophet ﷺ said, not now. You won't be able to do that now, meaning your people will prevent you from following me. But when the time comes, then come to me. So again, he later, he went to visit the Prophet ﷺ in Medina and embraced Islam. There were similar incidents. This, these incidents are very common. In fact, this is how Abdullah ibn Mas'ud first met the Messenger ﷺ outside Mecca when he was very young. He was a shepherd. And he was crudely called Ruwayir al-Ghanam. The, it's a diminutive of Ra'i. Ruwayir. Ra'i means a shepherd. And little shepherd means Ruwayir. So he, he was 
dismissively and contemptuously called Ruwayyul Ghanam, especially by the leaders of the Quraysh, Abu Jahl and others. And when Abu Jahl was killed, he, he would hit and assault Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu an regularly in Mecca. And lo and behold, the Fir'aun, the pharaoh of this ummah, when he met his end, he met it at the hands of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu an, when he stood over him in the battle of Badr. He said to him, you, he said, oh, Ruwayyul Ghanam, the little shepherd of flocks. Imagine, Abu Jahl is dying. He was already attacked by Mu'adh and Mu'awwad, Ibn Afra. And there he was bleeding to death, severely wounded. And yet his arrogance did not leave him. He was breathing his last. He had been severely attacked by two brothers, Mu'adh and Mu'awwad. And here, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu was standing over him to silence him once and for all. And yet, his arrogance did not leave him. He was contemptuously abusing Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu even then. And saying to him, you, Ruwayyul Ghanam, he said, you have climbed a great height indeed. So Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu was a little shepherd as he was referred to. He was outside Mecca with his flocks. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam met him. He requested him for, this, this was many, many years before, he requested him for milk. And he refused. He said, I am unable to give to you. Except for that one animal which wasn't able to provide anyway, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam again miraculously milked the animal Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu and then made an intention of believing in him. And then eventually he went and embraced Islam. And he was, according to many reports, the sixth person to embrace Islam. So this incident of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam personally milking animals and drawing milk in a miraculous manner, this occurred on a number of occasions before the hijrah, after prophethood, on the way to Hijrah, on the routes of Hijrah to Medina. So these were some of the incidents that took place on the occasion of the Hijrah. Then closer to Medina, this is what happened that uh, Urut ibn Zubayr relates. That the Prophet wasallam met Zubayr ibn al-Awwam who was returning from a trading mission to Sham. Sham, as I've said on many occasions, is that region of modern-day Syria, Lebanon, Jordan. So if you imagine that whole of that region, the eastern half was Sham and the western area was Iraq. And then you had uh, Persia. So the modern borders weren't known at, the ta- at that time, obviously. So the whole area of modern, the modern, of modern Levant and Syria... And was known as Sham. In fact, even parts of Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, all of that region was known as Sham. So the Prophet, so the Prophet was met by Zubayr ibn al-Awwam and his group, who had been returning from Sham from a trading mission. When they met the Prophet they gave the whole party gifts of white clothes. And... This detail is important because there is a mention of it later in the hadith. 
And according to other narrations, he was also met by Talha radiyallahu an. And Talha radiyallahu an also gave him a gift of clothes. So upon receiving this gift of clothes, they continued onwards towards Medina. And the hadith says, Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha relates this, وَسَمِعَ الْمُسْلِمُونَ بِالْمَدِينَةِ And the Muslims heard in Medina, مَخْرَجَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ مِنْ مَكَّةِ Of the departure of the Messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم from Mecca. فَكَانُوا يَغْدُونَ كُلَّ غَدَاتٍ إِلَى الْحَرَّةِ So they would come out every morning to the lava plain, to the Harra. Now, approximately, close to a hundred Muslims had, well, approximately 80 Muslims had already left Mecca and performed the hijrah, the emigration. This initial group of muhajirun, they eagerly awaited the arrival of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And along with them, the Ansar Sahaba radiyallahu anhum who had embraced Islam on the, in Mecca with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam on the occasion of Hajj in their pledges at Aqaba. And the others who hadn't yet met the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam who had embraced Islam because of the proselytizing of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, namely Mus'ab ibn Umayr radiyallahu anhum and others. And when they all, uh, many Ansar had embraced Islam. So the Muslims, when they heard of the departure of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, they eagerly awaited him. News reached them that he had left Mecca. Because the news is spread everywhere in the region. Every morning they would come out from the main city. And as I've said before, Medina wasn't a walled city. Nor was it a very close city. It was rather a collection of settlements spread across the whole oasis of Yathrib. And the whole oasis was surrounded by hard, rocky land, which was arid and uninhabitable, and which was arid and able to grow anything or support life in that sense. But that was in the outer region. So the whole oasis was contained within this. That's why it was an oasis. But it wasn't sandy desert. Rather, it was very rocky, hard, rocky area. And the parts of the area around the city or the settlements of Medina, of Yathrib, were plains of hard black rock. And the reason for that is these were the remnants of volcanic explosions. And lava, quite simply lava. So they had huge lava tracts. These eastern and western lava tracts, which weren't exactly east and west, but which stretched to the south and north as well, these lava tracts were known as Harratan, the two lava plains, or the two plains of black rock. So, every morning, the Muslims would come out of Medina from the main settlement and come out all the way to the outskirts in the south, waiting for the arrival of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. فَيَنْتَظِرُونَهُ حَتَّى يَرُدَّهُمْ حَرُّ الظَّهِيرَةِ So they would wait for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam until the heat of the afternoon would repel them 
and send them back because of the, the heat of the deserts. Unbearable. So they would wait till close to noon, not even close to noon, but late morning, and then return. And every day they would repeat this ritual. So one day they had returned. After having lengthened their waiting. So one morning again they came, waited for a very long time, and then returned without seeing the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Then when they returned to their homes, Before I continue, I'd just like to mention one more incident that happened just near to the city of Medina. Buraydah radiyallahu an a companion who hadn't embraced Islam. He is similar to Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Ju'asham had heard about the Prophet ﷺ's bounty. So he actually took a raiding party of 70 men from his people. And they tracked the Prophet ﷺ to close to Medina. And then he approached him to capture him. With a group of 70 riders. Not like Suraqat ibn Malik who came alone. And again, miraculously, he approached the Prophet ﷺ. And had a conversation with him and embraced Islam there and then, along with all 70 of the riders. And then he said to the Prophet وسلم, Messenger of Allah, it is not befitting you that you enter the city of Medina just like that, you being who you are. So he removed his imamah, his turban. And then he wrapped it around a spear and he offered it to the Messenger ﷺ that use this as a standard when you enter the city of Medina. Prophet ﷺ would have this miraculous effect on many people. Just like Suraqat ibn Malik, he came to capture him and he returned captivated. Same with Buraydah radiyallahu an. He came with a party of 70 to capture him. It was the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam who captured their hearts and minds. When they finally arrived in the city, this is how it happened. So, So that morning when they returned to their homes, A man from amongst the Jews, he climbed... Upon one of their fortresses. For a matter, which he was looking for or looking into, looking at. Medina was populated by pagan Arabs and Jews also. And we're talking about the majority of the inhabitants. There were others too. But the five main tribes, or the two main groups of people, were the pagan Arabs and the Jewish tribes. And of these, there were smaller other Arab tribes too, or clans, but mainly the most powerful and populous 
people were. The two Arab tribes of Aus and Khazraj, and the three Jewish tribes. There were other smaller Jewish tribes too. But the three main Jewish tribes were Banu Quraidah, Banu Qaynuqa, and Banu Nadir. And the two Arab tribes were Aus and Khazraj, who were also known as Banu Qaylah. Because ultimately they were cousins. And their great-grandmother, the Shada famous grandmother, Banu Qaylah. So they were known as Banu Qaylah. And I've mentioned before as well that in Mecca, the men were dominant, but in Medina, the women were dominant. And another aspect of this was that everywhere else, they would be named by their male ancestors. But here, the, both Aus and Khazraj were named after their great-grandmother, not their granddad. So, Banu Qayla. So, Aus and Khazraj were cousins from Banu Qayla. So one of the, and the Jewish tribes, one of the, some of the Jewish tribes, they, they lived in different areas, so they all had their settlements. As I said, they wouldn't live close to each other. The Jewish tribes had their own settlements. Banu Qaynuqa' had its settlement. Banu Nadir had its own settlement. Banu Quraidah had its own settlement. And Banu Quraidah was famously uh, situated, most of them were situated towards the south and southeast of Medina. And there they used to have fortresses. And the meaning of fortresses is not huge castles. But the wealthy individuals had homes of many stories, sometimes three stories or four stories. And the equivalent can be seen even today in parts of Yemen. In Yemen where you have uh, not modern buildings but traditional tall buildings and houses where they have three or four stories of large houses. Similar to that, and you can even see them in parts of North Africa, again in the rural areas, not not just in North Africa but all over Arabia, in the rural areas where they still haven't been so profoundly affected by modern architecture and modern style of living, you can see examples of these or Atam, where we call them fortresses, but they weren't fortresses as, as we know them. These were tall houses. And they were called fortresses in contrast to the single-story, humble mud dwellings of others. These were normally of strong brick, of stone, and they would, instead of being simple one story, they were t- three or four stories. And sometimes with turrets and ramparts, small ramparts and turrets. But f- compared to the rest of the houses, they did look like fortresses. And they are referred to in the Quran as well. Min sayasihim. Allah refers to that. Min in Surah Al Ahzab, min sayasihim. So from their fortresses. So they were known as sayasi, they were also known as atan. So. A Jew from, a man from the Jews, he climbed up to the top of one of his, of one of the fortresses in order to look into something that he was considering. فَبَصُرَ بِرَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمُ وَأَصْحَابِهِ مُبَيَّضِينَ So he saw the messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم and his companions. مُبَيَّضِينَ Glittering wines. Because... 
the Prophet ﷺ and his party had put on the white clothes that were given to them by Zubayr ibn Awwam and Talha radiyallahu anhumah. Yazuru bihim sarab The mirage was cutting them. The meaning of the mirage cutting them, or yazuru bihim sarab is, if we wouldn't know, but we've seen it on screen, where when the mirage, when, when, some, when someone's appearing from a distance, and you have the haze and the wave of the mirage, what happens is, they appear, then they disappear. They appear, then they disappear. So this is known as zawalu sarabu bihim. Yazuru bihim sarab. The mirage was cutting them because of the haze and the waves and the rising heat and the imagery of the mirage. Sometimes they would appear, then they would disappear, appear and disappear. And when they would appear, they would it would be in glittering white because they were wearing the white clothes and the sunlight was reflecting quite strongly off them. فَلَمْ يَمْلِكِ الْيَهُودِيُّ أَنْ قَالَ بِأَعْلَى صَوْتِهِ So the Jew could not contain himself and exclaimed at the top of his voice because the everyone had heard about the Prophet ﷺ and the co-inhabitants of the Arabs in Medina had also heard about them and they had been witnessing them coming out every morning and returning. So he was the first one to see the Prophet ﷺ and the party since he was high up on one of the uh, on the roof of one of the fortresses. So he shouted out at the top of his voice, فَلَمْ يَمْلِكِ الْيَهُودِ He could not contain himself. يَا مَعَاشِرَ الْعَرَبِ O assembly of the Arabs, هَذَا جَدُّكُمُ الَّذِي تَنْتَظِرُونَ This is your great father that you have been waiting for. Jad means grandfather, but obviously that's not what's being referred to here. هَذَا جَدُّكُمُ الَّذِي تَنْتَظِرُونَ This is your great father, your great one that you have been waiting for. فَثَارَ الْمُسْلِمُونَ إِلَى السِّلَاحِ So the Muslims rushed to their weapons. In order to protect the Prophet ﷺ, they rushed to their weapons and armor and gathered, making their way to the Messenger ﷺ. فَتَلَقَّوا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ بِظَهْرِ الْحَرَّةِ So they met the Messenger, or they met and received the Messenger ﷺ on the plain of the Harra, on the, la- on the uh, lava plains. فَعَدَلَ بِهِمْ ذَاتِ الْيَمِينَ So the Prophet ﷺ, he moved to the right, i.e. if you imagine him coming from the south, the Prophet ﷺ did not continue straight, rather he moved to the right. He took a slight detour to the right. حَتَّى نَزَلَ بِهِمْ فِي بَنِي عَمْرِ بْنِ عوف, Until he... Dismounted and descended amongst the Banu Amr ibn Awf, the clan of Amr ibn Awf. Now, this was an Aus clan. This was a clan of the Aus. As I've said, this is the best way of understanding the city of Medina. The, this was merely a collection of settlements. Every clan had its settlements. Every tribe had its settlements. Within every tribe, every clan had its own unique, small settlement. So the Banu Amr ibn Awf, the clan of Amr ibn Awf, they were members of the Khazraj, sorry, of the, they were members of the Aus tribe. 
But they, their clan had their own settlement in one part of Medina. And it was actually to the south. So this was the first area from the south that was accessible. And uh, for the Arabs at least. Uh, the, for the first Arab settlement. And the Banu Amr ibn Auf were from the Aus tribe. And the area where they lived was Quba. Which everyone knows now. The, masjid, the Quba Masjid and the Quba area. And that's about... Just two miles from the center of the city, if we regard the center as the masjid of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, now he had arrived in Medina. So sometimes, this needs to be understood. In the ahadith, in traditional literature, sometimes it's said that he moved from Quba to Medina. He went from Quba to Medina. So sometimes when, when we say that he traveled from one area of Medina to Medina, what it simply means is that he traveled from the outskirts of Medina into the center where the masjid is today. Otherwise, we can't really even really call that the center at the time. And then sometimes we hear that he arrived in Medina, i.e. from outside Mecca, from outside the city, it doesn't mean the center of the city where the masjid was. But as soon as he arrived in any area of the outskirts, that can be called Medina. So Quba is essentially a part of Medina. And he was even then, it was just one of the settlements of Medina. So the Prophet ﷺ, when he arrived on that day, he had now arrived in Medina. His hijrah was complete. And the date... This is something I haven't mentioned so far, but I'll mention it now. In fact, it's mentioned in the hadith, it's the next sentence. Until he descended with them, with his own party and the receiving party of the Sahaba, عنهم, in the clan or in the settlement of Amr ibn Awf. And this was on Monday. مِنْ شَهْرِ رَبِيعِ الْأَوَّلِ From the month of Rabi'ul Al-Awwal. So this is quite unique. We actually have the date mentioned in authentic hadith that the Prophet wasallam arrived in Medina, in Quba, and the day of his arrival was a Monday from the month of Rabi'ul Al-Awwal. Now, before I continue, I'd just like to mention how do we trace the movements it appears that the Prophet ﷺ left Mecca on Thursday in order to go to the cave of Hira. So he and Abu Bakr as-Siddiq slipped out at night from the rear of the house of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq and they went to the edge of the inhabited area of Mecca. Mecca wasn't a collection of settlements, like Medina. It was more of a closed city. It wasn't walled, but it was quite compact and close. So when he reached the end, edge of the inhabited area, at night, the Prophet ﷺ turned to Mecca, just before he continued on his way to the cave. And this was on Thursday night. And addressing Mecca, he said, O oh, city of Mecca, you are the most beloved place to me of all the places on earth. And if it wasn't for your people, 
who have driven me out, I would have never left you. So this is a clear hadith which states that Makkah was most beloved to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he preferred Makkah over Medina, without doubt. So why didn't he settle there? Why didn't he return after the hijrah had ended? Why didn't he return after the conquest of Makkah? Why didn't he do what the Ansar companions were fearful of him doing? Which is that the Ansar said that now that Makkah has been conquered, it has fallen to the Muslims. The people have submitted to the Messenger of Allah. He has no need to remain in Medina. These are his people, the Quraysh. This is his city. And... Prophet ﷺ, immediately after the conquest of Mecca, there had been the Battle of Hunayn. And after that Battle of Hunayn, he had distributed herds of camels, flocks of sheep and goats, blankets, weapons and armor that had all been collected in booty. And he had given much of this to the Quraysh, to the leaders of the Quraysh, who had just embraced Islam. So the Ansar Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, some of them, the young ones, muttered amongst themselves that, look at us. We are the ones who have made the sacrifices. Our swords are still wet and they haven't dried. And already the spoils and the booty and the favors are going to the Quraysh, who till this moment had been our bitterest and most avowed enemies. And the Prophet has favored them over us. He has given such and such person, such and such person, a hundred camels, another one a hundred camels, another one a hundred camels, and we have been left with nothing. It seems as though Mecca has been conquered, he has been reunited with his people. So the Prophet will now join them once again, favor them. And he will no longer return to Medina. We have been abandoned. Some of them said this. The words reach Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So he summoned them. Sa'd ibn Ubadah radiyallahu anhu came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he was a leader of the Khazraj. And after the death of Sa'd ibn Mu'adh radiyallahu anhu was a leader of Aws, Sa'd ibn Ubadah was regarded as the preeminent person amongst the Ansar in general for both Aws and Khazraj. So Sa'd ibn Ubadah came, Prophet said to him, what is this that I hear of the mutterings of the Ansar? So Sa'd ibn Ubadah said, O Messenger of Allah, these were just some young, naive ones amongst us who were making such complaints and mutterings. So the Prophet ﷺ said to him, O Sa'ad, what do you say? So he said, Ya Rasulullah, I am but one of my people. Meaning, I have the same reservation in my heart. (coughs) Prophet ﷺ said, Summon the Ansar and gather them in this tent and let there be no one 
but the Ansar. No one else can enter the tent. And when we say tent, the Arabs didn't always have walls and flaps for the tent. Suradiq. These were the tents, uh, flaps and the walls and the edges. That idea of a tent, often, especially on such occasions where uh, it was a large tent to hold many people, was that it wouldn't have any walls. There would be pole, tent poles with a cover. And that was it. That was regarded as a large tent. But all the surrounding area would be open and empty. No flaps, no covers. So he said, gather everybody in the tent. And only the Ansar can gather. No non-Ansari can be present. The Ansar Sahaba anhu were gathered. Allahu Akbar. But I've mentioned this story before. We don't have time to go into it in detail. But he stood up and he said, Oh, assembly of the Ansar. What are these words? What is the statement that has reached me from you? Are you displeased with me in your hearts? And then he went, he proceeded to console them, to pacify them, to reassure them. And he said, the ending, he said, O Ansar, isn't it true that you were misguided? And Allah guided you through me. And then the Prophet ﷺ went through a number of things in which the Ansar had been favoured by Allah in guidance, in reconciliation, in harmony, in their hearts being united after being so disunited, all through the barakah and the blessing of the Messenger ﷺ. For each statement... The Ansar would reply in one voice, Allahu wa Rasuluhu Aman. Allah and His Messenger are most kind. O Ansar, isn't it true that Allah did this? Isn't it true that I did this? And for each statement, Allahu wa Rasuluhu Aman. Allah and His Messenger are most favorable, most kind. Then, when he had ended, Prophet said to them, Why don't you speak? Why don't you say something? They said, what do we say, O Messenger of Allah? Allahu Akbar. He said to them, why don't you say? Like, your people drove you away from your city and we received you. Your people abandoned you and we supported you. And then the Prophet ﷺ went through a number of things in which... Allah had favoured the Prophet ﷺ and aided him and supported him through the Ansar. And then the Prophet ﷺ said to them, O Ansar, tell me, wouldn't you be pleased? that Remember one of their complaints for some of them was that people had been given camels and goats and sheep. Prophet ﷺ said, O Ansar, wouldn't it please you that people return with camels, with goats and goats and sheep, and you return with Allah and His Rasul. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, "Be reassured, I will return with you. From now, my life is with you, and my death is with you." And then. Prophet ﷺ said, The Ansar, other people are like the outer clothing. 
And then he, he mentioned about the Ansar and others, about outer clothing and inner clothing. In any case, Prophet ﷺ reassured them, SubhanAllah, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum say, there was not one soul in that tent who was not weeping. And only the Messenger of Allah could achieve that. He had this ability of reassuring, of satisfying and pleasing every single person. Every single person. No one would go away without being pleased by the words of the Prophet ﷺ. Even if there were three people and only one of them could get what they want. One of them would get what they wanted, yet all three would return content and happy. Because of the words of the Messenger wasallam, He had that unique ability. So he refused to remain in Mecca, even after the conquest of Mecca. Why? Because of the hijrah. We do not truly understand the significance and the greatness of the hijrah. The hijrah was so unique, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and the Prophet sallallahu wanted to retain that reward of hijrah for eternity. Nothing should come in the way. The Prophet ﷺ, when he departed from Mecca, he turned round and bidding farewell to this beautiful and blessed city, he said, of all the places on earth, you are the most beloved to me. And had your people not driven me out, I would have never left you. But once he, was, once he left, he was never to return for permanent residence. Why? Because of the hijrah. Even the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, the Sahaba would be ill in Mecca, and they would want to leave Mecca and die in Medina. Even though they were ill. They did not want to die in Mecca. Why? Because of the hijrah. This is also one of the reasons, you see, there is so much to explain, so much to say, and I'm conscious of the fact that we can't go into every single detail, because it will be prolonging the hadith and... I'm not sure everyone is up to the task of continuously wading through such details. I'm fine, I can stay here till Fajr. Some of you may have sales to go to. <laughs> but I mentioned about the Prophet ﷺ, that Abu Bakr and we learned in the hadith, that when he visited the Abu Bakr he said to him, Allah has granted me permission to do a hijrah. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu said to him, As-suhbah ya Rasulullah, in one narration, As-sahaba, company or messenger of Allah, meaning I wish your company. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, yes, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu wept. And then he said, I have prepared these two camels, choose one of them. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, Bithaman, with a price. Now, I never mentioned this then, but I'll explain it to you now because I want to explain about the hijrah and its significance. Why did the Prophet ﷺ insist on paying for the camel? Even though, towards the end of his life, he said, there has been no one who has been as kind, as favorable to me in his soul, in his wealth, and in his family as Abu Bakr. Because indeed, Abu Bakr would spend money on the Prophet ﷺ. He gave him his daughter. Why wouldn't he give him wealth? And he spent thousands on the Messenger ﷺ personally. Not just 
at his call in the way of Allah, but even personally on the Messenger wasallam, he had spent thousands, even in Mecca, before the Hijrah. So why on this occasion, the Prophet wasallam insisted at such a risky moment, when their lives were in peril, to pay for the camel? Do you know why? Rasulullah wanted his hijrah and emigration complete and only for himself. That's the reason. Even in the camel, Rasulullah wanted his own part in that hijrah. Abu Bakr would have his part in the hijrah. Rasulullah would have his part in the hijrah. The hijrah should be complete. Nothing should ever detract from the hijrah. Even after the conquest of Mecca, they were not to return. The Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, even Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu who was one of the chieftains of the Quraysh, despite his young age, he would he was elected to the council of leaders and elders. And he was one of their members. In fact, he would represent Banu Adi, his clan, Instead of his father, and instead of his older brother, Zaydun al-Khattab radiyallahu So he's one of the chieftains of the Quraysh. But even he, he would pray for shahada in the city of Rasulullah. And he was granted it. Abu Lu'la, a Persian I mentioned this in great detail, we went through the whole story in the commentary of Bukhari. Maybe I'll do it again, inshallah, sometime. But he, Abu Lu'lu'a, stabbed him in Fajr Salah. And Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu so mighty yet so humble, Allahu Akbar, so mighty yet so humble, he truly was. He was extremely humble. And yet he didn't look humble in the least. Because humility is the humility of the mind, and the humility of the heart, and the humility of the character. Not by appearance. Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha saw some people walking. They weren't even walking, they were shuffling along. They were shuffling along. Bent backs, drooped shoulders, lowered heads. Shuffling along. So Umm Mu'neen Aisha radiyallahu anha said, Who are these people? So someone said, O oh, Umm Mu'mineen, O oh, mother of the believers, Za'anu annahum nusak. They claim to be worshippers of Allah. I.e. that th- these are great worshippers. And as part of their great worship, they humble themselves. So they shuffle along. They lower their heads. So Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha said, Amir al-Mu'mineen, she said, Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anha was a far greater worshipper than any of them. He was a greater nasik than any of them. And yet, إِذَا تَكَلَّمَ أَسْمَعَ وَإِذَا مَشَى أَسْرَعَ وَإِذَا ضَرَبَ أَوْجَعَ Your rhymes. Yet when he was a greater worshipper than any of them, Yet, when he spoke, he made sure people heard. When he walked, he walked fast. And when he hit, it hurt. إِذَا تَكَلَّمَ أَسْمَعْ وَإِذَا مَشَى أَسْرَعْ وَإِذَا ضَرَبَ أَوْجَعْ 
So in appearance, Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu an wouldn't, he wouldn't lower his head, droop his shoulders. He was a mighty man in stature, in status, in physique, in appearance. He would fill people's eyes and hearts with awe. And yet he was immensely humble in heart and mind. Despite being the leader of the faithful, when he was stabbed that morning, he said to his son, Abdullah, go to Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha and say to her, Umar ibn al-Khattab requests your permission to be laid to rest next to his two companions. And when you speak to her, do not say Amir al-Mu'mineen, say Umar ibn al-Khattab, for this day I am no longer the leader of the faithful. Such humility. Allahu Akbar. Contrast his humility with that of Abu Jahl. On his deathbed. Both on their deathbed. So Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu He was granted his wish of shahada in the city of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Even for the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the sahaba radiyallahu anhum, their hijrah had to be complete. So much so that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wanted to pay for his own camel. Even from his own father-in-law and best friend Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhum. Even though on other occasions, forget uh, one camel, which according to some narrations was worth 400, and other narrations, and someone I mentioned, was 800 dirhams. Apart from one camel, Abu Bakr radiallahu anh had spent thousands unrestrictedly on Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And he had gladly accepted thousands and thousands. On many occasions. But why this one camel, when their lives were in danger to, because he wanted his hijrah to be complete. And nothing should detract from that. And that was a hijrah of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. They did not go back. And this is why the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam even prayed, Allahumma amdi li ashabi hijratahum. O oh Allah, complete my hijrah, complete the hijrah of my companions for them. Walakin al sa'd. And yet the poor one sa'd. Why? Because they were ill and passed away in Mecca. So the hijrah was complete. And when you imagine that this was a status of hijrah, even after so much sacrifice, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, when he wishes to emphasize sincerity of intention and purity of motive, the one deed which he mentions is not salah and not zakah and not hajj, or even zakah and sadaqah. The one deed which he mentions that must be sincere without the least pollution of insincerity is the hijrah. In the hadith of hijrah, in the hadith of sincerity of intention. That's a lesson for us. If they sacrifice so much in order for their hijrah and their emigration to be complete and pure and exclusive for them, and even then the Prophet ﷺ is warning them about sincerity of intention and purity of motive, then by Allah, where do we stand with our intentions and our deeds? So the Prophet ﷺ left Mecca and he bid farewell. Then he, this was on Thursday, don't worry, even though you may, I'll take you from one place to the other. I'll always bring you back inshallah. So, 
The Prophet ﷺ bid farewell. And this was on a Thursday. And then they went to the cave of Thawr. And Abu Bakr and the Prophet stayed there on Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. And then on Sunday, according to some reports in the morning and according to other reports in the evening. At, at night. So this was... Again, Monday had started. The Prophet ﷺ departed from the cave of Thawr on their way to Medina, on the route, their chosen route of Hijra along the coastal route. Normally, the travel from Mecca to Medina would take eight days. It was known as, a, uh, as an eight-day journey. They would have eight stops. But the Prophet ﷺ traveled for a whole of 14 days. So he departed on the Monday and he arrived two weeks later on the Monday. So it took a whole of 14 days, not eight days. According to some reports it was less, but because they were traveling in such a way that they had to be protected, they stopped on some occasions and in this way, some reports say they took eight, uh, nine, eight, nine days. Others say 14 days. But they arrived on Monday. When they arrived on the Monday, this is how they were received. The Prophet ﷺ then went, and as soon as he arrived, they came out to receive him. Of course, it's not mentioned here, but there was great jubilation, great celebration. The Sahaba anhum were waiting for the Prophet Because of their waiting, others were waiting too. The non-Muslims were waiting too. Abdullah ibn Salam who was a Jewish rabbi, he was waiting too. And when he went to see the Prophet he saw his noble face and the first thoughts that came to him were, فَعَرَفْتُ أَنَّهُ لَيْسَ كَذَّابِ And I realized that this is not the face of a liar. He saw him from a distance, Abdullah ibn Salam radiyallahu anhu, and he was a, was a leading rabbi. This is why when he embraced, he said to them, O Messenger of Allah, ask my people about me, but do not tell them that I have embraced. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam called them, this was later, and said, what do you have to say about Abdullah ibn Salam? So they said, Sayyiduna, Wabnu Sayyidina, Khayruna, Wabnu Khayyirina, Habruna, Wabnu Habrina. He is our master, the son of our master, because he came from a line of scholars and rabbis. His father was a rabbi, and he came from a whole lineage of learning. So they said, He is our master, son of our master, the best of us, the son of the best amongst us, our rabbi, the son of our rabbi. So the Prophet ﷺ said, well, even he has embraced and acknowledged me as a messenger of Allah. So immediately they said, The worst amongst us is the son of the worst. Then Abdullah ibn Salam anhu came out. So that was later when he embraced. But he had been waiting and he hadn't embraced yet. And when he saw the Prophet ﷺ from a distance, he was waiting along with the others. When he saw him, all he had to do was glance at his face. A man of learning and wisdom and tradition and sincerity, he glanced at his face. And he said, فَعَرَفْتُ أَنَّهُ لَيْسِ بِوَجْهِ كَذَّابِ I realize that this is not the face of a liar. 
So many had been waiting, and when they had arrived, there was great jubilation, great celebration, and tears of joy. And Prophet ﷺ then shifted to the right to Kadito and went and settled in Quba. That's where he dismounted first amongst the clan of Amr ibn Awf, uh, the uh, clan of the Aus. And there, that's where the first masjid was set up of the masjid of Quba. And inshallah, I'll speak about that from next week. Next week, we will complete the hadith. And that was the first masjid that was actually built in Islam. But you see, the first masjid, it's, it's relative. The first masjid was the masjid al-haram. Because even the Prophet ﷺ prayed there. But not in congregation. Not in congregation. But that wasn't the first masjid that was established or built. It was already there for the Muslims and uh, even the pagans used it. So the Prophet and the Sahaba would pray there individually. But they weren't able to collectively gather there and perform salah in jama'ah. But what was the, which one was the first masjid that was actually built and established in Islam? The masjid of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, which he made outside his house. He has that honor as well. Didn't Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha say that he built a masjid outside his house where he would pray and recite the Quran? So in a way, that is the first masjid. And then, so it's a relative term. And then when they arrived in Medina, the first masjid was Quba, where the Prophet ﷺ was for the first time able to gather the companions and pray salah with them. And of course, before his arrival, the Sahaba anhum, because they were free in Medina, before his arrival, they would gather in different places and they would perform the salah. So some of these areas where masjids, well, where an area was designated for salah can also be regarded as a masjid. So it's a relative term. But in terms of the Prophet ﷺ leading the Muslims in prayer and then instructing them to build a proper masjid, that was probably the, well, that was the masjid of Quba. But I'll explain more about that. Uh, next week, inshallah. And it's a very important masjid, masjid of Quba, very blessed masjid. Allah has referred to it as the masjid of taqwa in the Holy Quran. And the Prophet ﷺ would visit the masjid regularly, every week on a Saturday. Abdullah ibn Umar relates that the Prophet ﷺ would go walking all the way from his house, his masjid, to masjid of Quba, walking and riding regularly each week. And there he would go, just visit the masjid, pray salah, and return. And we learn in the ahadith that one salah in that masjid, and according to some reports, four rak'at, so one salah meaning one of four rak'at, is equivalent to one umrah. And that's in authentic ahadith. So it's a very blessed masjid. And that was the first masjid. He stayed there for a number of days, and then he moved on, and he left on a Friday, and as he moved on at Jumu'ah time, he stopped somewhere and performed the first Jumu'ah Salah in Islam, and amongst Ibn Musalim, 
And then from there he moved on and arrived in the area which is now known as the Masjid of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that's where they built the masjid. So next week, inshallah, we learn about all of this and this brings us to the end of the hadith. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. May Allah make us amongst those who are sincere in their learning, in their deeds. And may Allah... Enable us to understand the words of Allah and His Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulihi nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on double zero double four one two one double seven one three triple seven or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.